culture, culture everywhere, and not a drop of wisdom to drink. We spend, rightly spend, time and effort to read and interpret the Bible. And the Bible tells us that Jesus lived as a Jew in Roman Greco times. And we look up from our Bibles and we wonder, how should we live in our times? Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Everyday Theology, How to Read Cultural Texts and Interpret Trends, a collection of essays edited by Kevin J. Van Hooser, Charles A. Anderson, and Michael J. Sleesman. 288 pages published by Baker Academic on March 2007, available via Amazon Kindle for $19.99. But if you are listening to this in August 2022, today's book is the Logos Free Book of the Month. Now, if you missed the free deal, not because you didn't know Logos gives free books every month, you do, but because you didn't expect to like today's book, I didn't, then uh, in order to avoid missing other free deals, subscribe to Reading and Readers so that you don't miss out on unexpected gems. And this book is an unexpected gem. I came to this book with little enthusiasm. The book cover is bland and boring. Sorry. If I was not assigned, quote-unquote, to read this book, I would not read it, much less spend money on it. (laughs) I predicted that a book titled Everyday Theology would be another worthy attempt to convince the general audience on the importance of theology in Christian living. The thing is, I am not just convinced, I am a vocal activist, as this podcast can attest. So I was not expecting much uh, when I was uh, uh, flipping this book. And that just goes to show that one shouldn't read a book by its cover or title. Maybe we need to read the subtitle. It's how to read cultural texts and interpret trends. Whenever you are figuring out what the ending in the movie means, you are trying to read a cultural text. Whenever you are figuring out what to wear, you are interpreting trends. Figure out how what you watch and wear connects to your faith, and you have a fair idea what this book is about. This book offers Christian interpretations of architecture, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, fantasy funerals, and more. A more academic but far less marketable title would be Cultural Hermeneutics, an Introduction with Case Studies. And that is what this book is about. Now, we know what is Biblical Hermeneutics, but maybe not cultural hermeneutics. Biblical hermeneutics is a core subject in any seminary. It's about interpreting the Bible. On the other hand, cultural hermeneutics is about interpreting the culture. And until this book came along, I didn't know that there was a gap in my mental toolbox that cultural hermeneutics fills. Many years ago, in my more innocent age, a friend asked whether I had listened to Eminem's new song. I thought to myself, I didn't know Eminem's do music, I thought they only made chocolate. Soon I figured out that he was referring to Eminem, a notorious uh, rapper, uh, not a Christian rapper. So fast forward to today, and as a Christian, as a father, what do I do with Eminem and his angry, sometimes violent lyrics? And if not him personally, then about that entire genre. Is it wrong to listen? And if it is, where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? Because most, if not all, music that we hear outside of the church, 
has no God, no Jesus in them. If everything we do must glorify God, then is it more Christian, more biblical to put aside Eminem and listen to Taylor Swift? Now, why would that be? Perplexing, isn't it? Um, cultural norms shift so quickly and the church gives a knee-jerk reaction, appealing more to tradition than a rigorous application of the Bible. And often, tragically, betraying a lack of understanding of the music, book, film, or trend. This is xenophobic. It is not Christ-centric. I have been on a spiritual journey to find the truth on culture, and along the way, I have found helpful guides. I ask, if God, who is good, is not dwelling in non-Christians, then how is it that they can do so much good? They, for example, produce great works of art in architecture, literature, music, and so much more. Abraham Kuyper gave me an answer in his book, Common Grace. I ask, can I read non-Christian books? And Tony Reinke absolved me of any guilt. I have adapted the reasoning in his book, Lit, to movies and music. We must have, in simple terms, we must have a Christian worldview in order to understand the media that is around us. And I learned what is a good book from Andrew Peterson in his autobiography, Adorning the Dark. Among other things, a good book makes this world brighter, not dimmer. It is not an escape uh, from this world, but you need to ask, it's an escape to what world? Because we want to escape to a reality that is uh, God-created. Uh, and I can see that in the vision crafted and fought for in the children's bi uh, book series, the Green Ember series by S.D. Smith. Oh, to be a hedge trimmer in that world. So my journey to find the truth about culture through many books, through many guides, has today reached a new milestone because of today's book. Now, this book surfaces questions I had but didn't know how to articulate. And it has given me the tools to read cultural text. First of all, to see television, movies, comic books, video games, and the internet as cultural text. While the earlier books, earlier guides, were helpful to give a framework and a vision, this book, Everyday Theology, tackles Eminem head-on. So let's open the book. The book begins with a reader's guide that tells us where this book began in a cultural hermeneutics course Kevin Van Hooser teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, the Reader's Guide tells us what this book is about, which is how to read culture, how to use this book, which I will explain more later, and whom to thank for this book. The usual suspects, rightly acknowledged and thanked. Following the Reader's Guide, we have four parts. Part 1, Introduction. Part 2, Reading Cultural Text. Part 3, Interpreting Cultural Trends. And Part 4, Concluding Untheoretical Postscript, which is probably the most uh, intriguing uh, title among these uh, four parts. And at the end, at the end of uh, the four parts, we have a glossary of methodologi methodological terms and information on the 10 contributors to this book and the usual subject index and scripture index. Now, with that overview, let's go into the details. Part 1, Introduction, should be renamed The Method because that is where Van Hooser is driving the readers towards. He makes the case for cultural hermeneutics. 
as befitting a systematic theologian who has written books like Is There Meaning in This Text? Van Hooser unpacks Matthew 16 verse 1 to 3, which he calls it the most likeliest proof text for cultural hermeneutics. I quote, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. End quote. Now, the signs of the times, uh, as Van Hooser um, suggests, can refer to the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. We are, after all, living in an age where the kingdom of God has been inaugurated but is awaiting consummation. So let us learn to read the signs of the age, the signs of the times. And that would include the culture. Now, I must point out that uh, if Van Hooser's opening chapter is difficult, it's because he wishes to ensure readers are on a sure footing. That's what he is laying out. Uh, that what he is laying out is biblical and possesses academic rigor. Some of us, I understand that some of us, may not care to learn about locution, elocution, and perlocution. Some of us do, but most of us, I think, do not. Now, bear in mind that Van Hooser is writing everyday theology for the everyday Christian. He writes, I quote, Cultural texts project worlds of meaning that invite us in and encourage us to make our home there. The world of a cultural text, say, for example, the world projected by friends, survivor, or desperate housewives, unfolds a possible way of living together, a possible way of being human. But we can go further. These culturally created worlds present themselves accompanied by the whisper of their creators. And behold, it is very good. There is the rub. Should we accept the invitation? End quote. So you see that it's not just an academic uh, having fun with his favorite terms and uh, phrases and uh, definitions. He does try to bridge it and he does make a very, very good argument for the need for cultural hermeneutics. If you persist to the end, you will be rewarded with the method. When I read the phrase, the method, my mind just went to acute Poirot, the fictional detective in Agatha Christie's uh, novel. He often berated Captain Hastings for not using his grey cells and the lack of method in his approach. And uh, I like to read mystery novels to learn, somehow, the detective's methods. And I look forward to the final reveal. Now, wouldn't it be super if we could learn the detective's methods and make our own reveals? And that's what Van Hooser offers here, the secrets to reading the world. The world behind the text, the world in the text, and the world in front of the cultural text. Along the way, you ask questions like, I quote, Who made this cultural text and why? What does it mean and how does it work? What effect does it have on those who receive, use, or consume it? End quote. There is more to say just about this chapter, Van Hooser's uh, introductory chapter. Uh, but we should move on. We have to move on to the other chapters. But I stress again that you must complete Van Hooser's chapter, no matter how tempted you may be to skip to part two. Part two, reading cultural texts, have some, has some of the best chapter titles that I have read this year. Let me read the titles for chapters two to six. We have here, 
The Gospel According to Safeway, The Checkout Line and the Good Life. Chapter two, uh, oh, chapter 3, uh, Despair and Redemption, a theological account of Eminem. The High Price of Unity, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Between City and Steeple, Looking at Megachurch Architecture. Now, just a short note over here. This essay was written by Prekumar D. Williams, and that is noteworthy in this collection of essays because this is uh, written by an instructor in theology at India Baptist Seminary uh, in Bangalore, India. So I thought that was interesting uh, to have someone from India writing about city and steeple. And uh, the chapter 6, okay, uh, coming back. Chapter 6, uh, the title is Swords, Sandals, and Saviors, Visions of Hope in Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Now, this is a fairly recent movie when this book was published. And let me remind you that this book was published in 2007. And let me also bring to your attention that the movie, The Gladiator, was released in the year 2000. Yes, it's been that long. It's been 22 years since you saw Maximus commanding gladiators in the arena. Now, I had an impossible time choosing a chapter to talk about. Any of these topics could easily take up a whole podcast episode. From the Eminem chapter, I could jump to today, 15 years after the book, and we could talk about Christian hip-hop. In Shai Lin's 2017 album, Still Jesus, the last track of that album is titled Washer's Warning. And in that track, we hear Paul Washer saying, I quote, I came here thinking that I would hear hip-hop. I came here thinking that I would hear rappers. I heard preaching. I heard preaching. And I heard a respect for the truth and a desire to communicate it. End quote. Oh, how about another question that bugs me, as I hinted earlier. In the chapter on architecture between city and steeple, we read about theatres and malls, steeples, uh, pulpits and communion tables. But what I really want to ask the author is, hey, you're writing from India Baptist Theological Seminary. I want to know more about that one line in your conclusion where you say vernacular forms of architecture have potential to recall a theological heritage and express the identity of a people called to witness in a given culture. So, Steeples in Indian churches. Yay or nay? <laughs> and as I ask this, my mind is thinking also about the Hagia Sophia, that great Constantinople cathedral that is now a mosque in Istanbul. So there's so many things we can talk about from there. And there's so many jumping points from this book. But for the sake of a coherent book review, let us just look into the thesis of one chapter. And I made my choice. And what I'll talk about from this book today is from the movie Gladiator. Michael Sleesman, the, the writer of that essay, writes, I quote, Though it may initially surprise the casual viewer, this essay proposes that the theme of visions of hope is a hermeneutical key to the best interpretation of Gladiator. Grappling with hope gives this film deep relevance in a culture where so many are disillusioned by hopes that disappoint. 
there is a ripeness in the air for a hope that lasts, a hope that is eternal, a hope that does not fail, and gladiator gropes blindly after such a hope. End quote. Oh, that's a beautiful piece of prose, if I don't mind saying. Now, Sleesman goes through the method. Okay, the method. In the world behind the text, we read the influence of classical epics like Spartacus and Ben-Hur, a quick analysis of Ridley Scott's films, and we also see uh, briefly the historical Marcus Aurelius and his family, dysfunctional family. In the world of the text, uh, Sleesman uh, writes the, about the plot, the characters, and whether there is an overt Christian theme in the movie. The director, Gridley Scott, says no, but at the same time, he also says that Maximus dies as a martyr and saviour of Rome. While the Christian influence may be ambiguous, may be debatable, it is clear, and not debatable, that Maximus is a religious character. His faith sustains him, and this topic is explored in depth in the next section. In the world in front of the text, uh, Sleesman explores various interpretations. He pointedly says that the privilege, the privilege of interpretation, should be accorded to the director, Ridley Scott, who has said that the central theme of the movie is mortality. But Sleesman refutes him. Uh, I quote, While Scott may have intended something less than Christian, the expression of a deep orientation toward the future may undercut that intention. If mortality were the cultural existential express, the question begs to be asked why meeting his family in the afterlife motivates his actions in this world, as Scott himself argues. In the end, I propose Scott directs better than he knows. End quote. Hmm. And Sleesman proceeds to lay out the Christian vision of hope, contrasted against what is offered in Gladiator and politely, though insistently, in, uh, says that Sleesman has a better interpretation of the movie than the director. He writes, I quote, As such, I appeal to the interpretation I believe to be the most comprehensive and yet simplest as that which resonates with the cultural existentials expressed in this cultural text. Quite possibly, Scott himself may have lacked a full vocabulary of hope to express his own vision and intention even if this was at a subconscious level. End quote. Quite possibly, Sleesman is a bit full of himself. Film critics, the bane of every director's existence. So, but I don't think so. I, let, me, let me critique the chapter. Now, my question is, is it correct to insist on your interpretation over and against the creator's interpretation? <laughs> Now, because you see, when I say something, I don't appreciate it when someone insists that he knows more than me on what I just said. <laughs> and we all know how some people can read power politics, gender ideology, conspiracy theories into anything, even the Bible. So are we Christians guilty of reading things into the text when we read the culture? Now, this is... Uh, Question that Van Hooser, Sleesman, and every contributor in this book takes seriously. They actually do address what I just asked. And I have uh, come away from that question with thanksgiving. I am thankful that God is truth, and I don't have to second-guess God's motives or character in what He says. 
when a man says, I love you to a woman, maybe he has other motives. Power politics, gender ideology, or conspiracy theories related. <laughs> but when God says, I love you to you and to me, it is the purest and holiest of motives. So knowing God's standards are ever true, never tarnished, never questionable, I, I appreciate what the authors of these essays do in bringing God's standards, God's word to bear in these works. So now, even though interpretations can be flawed, I think the attempt to use uh, the God's word to shine light on culture is a commendable one and one that more of us should be trained at. And uh, that is the point of this book. I finished part two, hoping for more. Part three gives me more, but of a different kind. Now, instead of specific cultural texts that we can hold in our hands, we have broader trends. Chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 look at busyness, blogs, transhumanism, and fantasy funerals. Everybody understands busyness and blogs, although Facebook, Twitter, TikTok have since surpassed blogs in popularity and notoriety. Um, transhumanism is about being more than human. It is mankind's deliberate attempt to create the X-Men. Uh, fantasy funerals is a weird one because how is this a trend? <laughs> I don't recognize it as anything other than a fetish subculture phenomenon. It's just a strange, strange thing. Um, maybe when this essay was written, fantasy funerals were taking off. And all I can say is, thankfully, it didn't because it was so weird. Anyways, um, there are lots of interesting parts in part three, um, and we move on to part four. Part 4 has only one chapter, chapter 11. Maybe we could have hoped that there would be more chapters, but uh, there's already 288 pages in this book. So chapter 11 is putting it into practice, weddings for everyday theologians. And uh, here we, we have everything we have just read, we have the method, the case studies, and then applied to weddings, our day-to-day -day life. And in that chapter, the book ends. I sometimes complain that books end too abruptly, especially books which are a collection of essays. You read the final essay and that's it, no more. <laughs> There's no concluding statement just to, just to close the whole book. Now, thankfully, this is not one of those books. It ends well by bringing to mind Eminem, Gladiator, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, weddings, so that we can uh, you know, just come together and see what we have learned and what we can do as cultural agents, which is the call from the book. And we end the book with a sense of closure. So I want to thank the editors for that because, like I said, sometimes uh, collections of essays just, just end. And, and I just want to say here, I'll just uh, devote a section of this podcast to this. Editors are the silent heroes of the publishing world. They take lumps of clay and turn it into a Michelangelo masterpiece. Or maybe it's the other way around. <laughs> Anyways, I don't normally observe uh, the work of the editor, but in this book, I am glad to commend the editors. Before each chapter, the editors give an editorial introduction. For example, for chapter 4 on UN, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, the editorial introduction begins with, I quote, With this essay, we come to what at first appears to be a very different kind of cultural text then the music of Eminem, end quote. Eminem being the third chapter, the one just before this. So 
this, the, these uh, short editorial introductions link the chapters together. They highlight the differences and commonalities from one chapter to the next. They help readers know what to look out for. Then uh, there are these uh, little uh, box inserts uh, scattered throughout the whole book, which serve as editorial comments. They have titles like Behind the Text, For the Toolkit, Further Reflections, and Book Link. Behind the Text gives a behind-the-scenes look at the essay. For example, the Gladiator chapter, the behind-the-scenes box insert spotlights how Michael Sleesman, the writer of that chapter, has surveyed various interpretations, assessed them, and proposed his own interpretation with evidence. So, showing us, all right, just putting a spotlight on how it, uh, what, what's happening in that chapter. In another box insert, uh, for the toolkit, the editor critiques the interpretative technique applied, and in further reflection, the editors uh, offer further thoughts on the subject. But the editorial comment that I most look forward to is the book link that comes uh, near the end of the chapter. It is a 300-word or so essay by Van Hooser where he reviews books. For example, on the architecture chapter, he recommends uh, Heaven in Stone and Glass, Experiencing the spirit Spirituality of the Great Cathedrals by Robert Barron and Angels in the Architecture, a Protestant Vision for Middle-earth by Douglas Jones and Douglas Wilson. So these recommendations are a handy supplement to the further readings suggested by the essayists. So, the, so in the beginning of this episode, I lamented the lack of resources to deal with uh, culture. Now, at the end of each chapter, I am spoiled for choice. So, a wonderful bounty. With so many editorial comments, it sometimes, it sometimes feels intrusive, okay? but I, I don't think uh, it's that bad. But it does feel like a teacher giving students helpful pointers on their work. Wait, that's exactly what this book is. <laughs> it's a collection of essays from Professor Van Hooser's Cultural Hermeneutics class. From the Reader's Guide, I quote, my co-editors and I have selected a representative sampling from the 145 term papers written over the past five years. End quote. So we are reading a bunch of students' homework in this book. <laughs> now, I don't know how heavily the chapters were edited from their original submission, but I must commend the final product. It is well organized. The chapters flow seamlessly. The editorial inserts can be intrusive, but it's not that bad. And the book ends with much appreciated closure. It reads so well. I don't, cannot imagine that this was written by a bunch of students. Um, it reads so well as if it was guided by a single mind through multiple hands. Everyday theology is for the everyday Christian. Uh, movies, music, politics, social media, weddings and funerals. Uh, there is no shallow analysis on them with a gospel message tacked on at the end. The first chapter written by the professor might be a bit hard reading, but the remaining chapters, the best term papers selected for the best fit, were written by individuals who have yet to develop the fine art of academic obfuscation. One criticism uh, is the book is a bit dated. It's 2007. While we can see Tom Cruise reprise Maverick, we won't be seeing Russell Crowe reprise Maximus. So there will be many people who may not know anything about the movie Gladiator. 
Now, wouldn't it be sweet to see the method applied to Top Gun and track what has changed from 1986 to 2022 from a Christian worldview? So with that, don't we want more cultural hermeneutics? Don't we want to see an update or a, a small industry just like biblical hermeneutics? There's just so many books on that, so many uh, blogs and YouTube videos and so on about that. But don't, well, don't we want to see more on culture, like Top Gun? I googled cultural hermeneutics and there are no interesting hits. And it's not that people are not analysing culture from a Christian worldview. Like I said, we have tons of blogs, YouTube videos, podcasts, speaking for culture, speaking against culture. The problem is we don't have a critical mass to work around. Unlike in apologetics or soteriology or eschatology, where discussions come out of those categories. So if I search for apologetics, I can, got, I can get God questions, I can get a bunch of other famous apologist websites. So discussions can happen from there, from that category. The thing is that discussions on music are labelled music, not cultural hermeneutics, which makes it difficult to learn the skills of reading culture, which is a bit sad to hear. Or maybe I just don't know. I could be speaking for ignorance over here. So if you do know something about this, please enlighten me. Now, in fact, when I first started this podcast, Reading Readers, there was another podcast idea that I was toying with, which was to analyse entertainment from a Christian worldview. Surely, I'm not the only one who sees in Spider-Man's With great power comes great responsibility. And in that, an echo of the Christian, we are blessed to be a blessing. So there are so many things that we can say about uh, entertainment, uh, comics, books, uh, comic books, uh, books, uh, movies, and so on, that I was thinking to explore uh, in a podcast medium. So today's book uh, has showed me in book form what I only imagined could be possible in a podcast. Do you think it's a great podcast idea? Like I said, if you know any, anything like it, just tell me, and I'll be very happy to, to see it and uh, to listen to it. If you like the idea enough to do it, okay, if you like the idea so much that you would like to do it, then just do it. And you can tell me and I'll be happy to be your first subscriber. Now, until told otherwise, uh, I think today's book is uh, most impressive and unique contribution to cultural discussions. It's a book that I've been waiting for, but having no category or keyword to search for. It's a great jumping off point to explain much of what is happening around us and how to read whatever that is happening around us. It keeps us on our toes to see culture as more complex and less simplistic as we sometimes suppose. And thus gives us more opportunities for Christians to be a better reader of culture. This is a Reading and Readers review of Everyday Theology, How to Read Cultural Texts and Interpret Trends, edited by Kevin J. Van Hooser, Charles A. Anderson, and Michael J. Sealsman. 288 pages published by Baker Academic on March 2007. Available via Amazon Kindle for $19.99 and free in Logos for August and only August. I've given so many good reviews lately that you might think that I rate every book highly. I do try to see the best in every book. But the next book I review is not a book that I particularly enjoy. Um, 
pray tell, what is that book, you say? Well, subscribe to Reading and Readers and uh, make sure you don't miss out on any great deals and book reviews. This podcast saves you time and money. So tell your friends, have a good one. Thanks for listening.